Please be seated. It is with great pleasure that I welcome you to tonight's lecture and question period. For the annual Steiner Lecture is the highlight of our yearly Friday night lecture series. The Steiner Lecture was established in memory of Andrew Steiner, an alumnus of this campus from 1963. Andrew was a person of wide ranging interests and the endowment in his memory enables the college to bring to campus speakers who are especially significant contributors to their field and to expose our community to thinkers and fields of study that we might not otherwise encounter. Members of Andrew Steiner's family and their friends are with us tonight, so it is a particular honor to introduce this lecture and this lecturer. Dr. Vicki Mahaffey is Professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois. She is a former Guggenheim Fellow and winner of both the Lindbeck Award and the Ira Abrams Award for Teaching. Her previous works include Modernist Literature, Challenging Fictions, Reauthorizing Joyce, and States of Desire, Wild, Yeats, Joyce, and the Irish Experience. She is currently working on a book titled The Joyce of Everyday Life. <laughs> Don't you want to read that? Ulysses is often singled out as the greatest novel in English of the 20th century. Dr. Mahaffey's lecture, Feeling Ulysses, promises to help us read, not merely to study, this great work which, in the words of one noted reader, shows us in single words, phrases, sentences, page after stunning page, the beauty and possibilities of our gorgeous, infinitely various, and supple English language. Please welcome Dr. Mahaffey. Thank you so much. Um, it is such an honor to be here. I would have loved to have known Andrew Steiner. Um, I'm so impressed with the college. This is my first time in Annapolis. Um, and my thanks to everyone that helped to make this possible and to you for coming on a Friday night, on Good Friday. <laughs> so I think that's astonishing, inspirational even. Okay. Um, I hope I'm right that I'm not going to assume that you've read Ulysses. So, um, uh, let me tell you how Ulysses is described on Amazon. <laughs> it is a disillusioned study of estrangement, paralysis, and the disintegration of society. Really? <laughs> this is how they describe one of the greatest Irish comic novels. Um, how do you introduce it? Um, how do you introduce something like Ulysses? Um, I'm going to take uh, a geek move, and, and in fact, a dated geek move, and um, ask if any of you have ever seen Buffy the, the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> okay, there are a few of you. Well, um, I don't know what you think about Buffy, but one of the things that's wonderful about the series is that when Joss Whedon was writing it and, and designing it, he designed it um, so that um, this, little, this little high school student encounters, in the form of vampires especially, but also other demons and monsters, 
psychological um, obstacles and threats, and she um, destroys them. And in a way, that's how Joyce used the Odyssey, um, selected episodes from the Odyssey. And what I want to do at the beginning is really just um, give you some background. If you know Ulysses, maybe this will be a review, but because I know that you study um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, maybe it will be a useful um, way of getting into the book. Um, so, first I have to figure out how to use this. Let's see if, if I can do it. Hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I suppose I'll just read it because you're going to have to read it anyway. I was 12 years old when we dealt with the Trojan War at school. Only the Odyssey stuck in my memory. I want to be candid. At 12, I liked the mysticism in Ulysses. When I was writing Dubliners, I first wished to choose the title Ulysses in Dublin, but gave up the idea. In Rome, when I had finished about half of Portrait, I realized that the Odyssey had to be the sequel, and I began to write Ulysses. So um, Joyce's encounter with the Odyssey ended up being important for everything he ever wrote. Um, and here's something that he told a friend of his, and several of the next quotes will be things that he um, told Frank Budgen, a friend of his um, that he talked to a lot when he was um, working on Ulysses in Zurich. I'm now writing a book, said Joyce, based on the wanderings of Ulysses. The Odyssey, that is to say, serves me as a ground plan. Only my time is recent time, and all my hero's wanderings take no more than 18 hours. And we're going to be stuck there. <laughs> oh, there it is. Um, and some of this is re repetitious, as you'll see, but it, it re-emphasizes um, certain points that might be important. I was 12 years old when we dealt with the Trojan War at school. No, we, we already had that. <laughs> no wonder it's repetitious. Hang on. <laughs> I can't make it go forward. There. Okay. Um, he's actually talking about why, or what he was trying to do in creating the character of Leopold Bloom. And he says, um, he asks Budgeon if he knows of any complete character in literature, and Budgeon suggests Hamlet. And Joyce replies, Hamlet is a human being, but he is a son only. Ulysses is son to Laertes, but he is father to Telemachus, husband to Penelope, lover of Calypso. He was subjected to many trials, but with wisdom and courage came through them all. Don't forget that he was a war dodger who tried to evade military, military service by simulating madness. He might never have taken up arms and gone to Troy, but the Greek recruiting sergeant was too clever for him, and while he was plowing the sands, placed young Te Telemachus in front of his plow. But once at the war, the conscientious objector became a jusque aboutist. Um, when the others wanted to abandon the siege, he insisted on staying till Troy should fall. We're going to just do this for a while, I think. Um, <laughs> I s hang on. Let's see. No. You can see I'm a technological genius. Um, yeah, here, this is, this is where we want it to be. Another thing, the history of Ulysses did not come to an end when the Trojan War was over. It began just when the other Greek heroes went back to live the rest of their lives in peace. And then Joyce laughed. He was the first gentleman in Europe. When he advanced naked to meet the young princess, Nausicaa, 
He hid from her maidenly eyes the parts that mattered of his brine-soaked, barnacle-encrusted body. He is an inventor, too. The tank is his creation. Wooden horse or iron box, it doesn't matter. They are both shells containing armed warriors. And then this is the last bit. I see him from all sides, and therefore he is all round in the sense of your sculptor's figure. But he is a complete man as well, a good man. At any rate, that is what I intend that he shall be. Um, now, I'm going to recap the plot in less than 30 seconds. Spoil alert. <laughs> um, but you don't read it for the plot, so in fact, it won't spoil anything. The book takes place on a single day, June 16th, 1904. On that day, Stephen Dedalus, a semi-autobiographical figure based on a younger version of Joyce, gets drunk on an empty stomach and goes berserk in a whorehouse, hitting a chandelier with his ash plant after dancing by himself. Later, he's knocked out by a soldier, and Bloom takes him out and ultimately home to buck him up with some coffee and then hot cocoa. He sings Bloom an anti-Semitic song and refuses Bloom's invitation to stay the night, even though he has nowhere to go. Bloom's wife, Molly, has a sexual assignation with a hot man, fittingly named Blazes Boylan, <laughs> that day. Bloom wanders through the city of Dublin, going to a funeral, visiting a woman who is giving birth in the maternity hospital, and masturbating on the beach, titillated by a young woman who is swinging her leg for him. It was this episode that caused Ulysses to be banned for over a decade throughout the English-speaking world. And that's why my parents think that I specialize in dirty books. <laughs> so, um, oh, I love this. I'd like to begin with an anecdote about what it might mean to feel Ulysses. Almost 20 years ago, I organized a marathon reading of the book for faculty and graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania. I bought a lot of food and drink, and the plan was to take turns reading Ulysses aloud from beginning to end without stopping. People were free to leave and to return, to eat. I provided food and even to nap if necessary. We began at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning and would end when we finished, which we expected to be around noon on Sunday. In fact, we didn't get to the end until about 4. We shouldn't have stopped to eat. Around 9.45 a.m. on Saturday, two identical twin brothers arrived, both of whom had been blind from birth, carting 19 volumes of Ulysses in Braille. One of them was in my graduate seminar on Joyce, and it turns out that his brother was just as interested in the book, so they decided to do the reading together. These two turned out to be the most committed of all the readers. People started dropping off as Saturday night approached, and by 2 or 3 a.m. there were only a handful of people left. But the Simpsons were there until the end, reading sensitively with voice and fingers. We were interrupted after 2 a.m. by two friends popping by dressed as dice. They had just been to the annual <laughs> Bozar costume ball, but it seemed perfectly normal to people reading the Circe episode, in which costume changes abound, caps sing, and bars um, caps speak, and bars of soap sing. The reason I wanted to begin with these brothers, one of whom passed away from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, in November, 
is because they so beautifully illustrate what it means to read feelingly. And now I've tried to throw in references to books that you do have on the program, so here comes another one. Um, in King Lear, after Gloucester has been blinded, a mad Lear asks him to read a letter, and Gloucester asks if he means with his eyes. Lear chafes him for being both sightless and penniless, but Gloucester insists, I see it feelingly. His defense of blindness implicitly accuses his earlier sighted self of having been guilty of a different kind of blindness, unfeeling indifference. Lear, too, had suffered from such metaphorical blindness, a failure to see with his heart and his other senses. But his sighted blindness, the blindness that he used to have, a result of privilege, also gave way to feeling once he had given away his kingdom and learned the truth about his family. Real blindness in King Lear, the kind that is most destructive, is an inability to feel, and it afflicts sighted people most strongly. Sight, as it is in much feminist and psychoanalytic criticism, is closely associated with power and potency, but that power often goes hand in hand with callousness. It is only after Gloucester and Lear lose their potency, remember the persistent metaphorical connection between eyeballs and testicles, that they find themselves able to see it feelingly, and in Lear's case, the intensity of these newly discovered feelings drives him mad. The double meaning of feeling, designating both touch and emotion, is crucial. And I went over real quickly the relationship between um, testicles and eyeballs. Do you need me to elaborate on that? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, I just think it's interesting because remember um, how uh, Oedipus, when he finds out that he slept with his mother, blinds himself? And it's a symbolic castration, and it's a symbolic castration in part because in many different languages, balls can designate either eyeballs or testicles. And castration, of course, is getting rid of the testicles. So anyway, that connection between sight and sexual potency, especially in men, is um, one of the things that I, I wanted to emphasize there. What I haven't yet clarified is um, that the Simpson brothers didn't just read by touch. They also read in an emotionally alive way. They were exceptionally responsive to the undercurrents of feeling in Ulysses. Moreover, the feeling with which they read contrasted sharply with the more mechanical, rapid way that everyone else was reading. Most people were just trying to get through it. And this contrast leads me to the main argument about Ulysses I want to present tonight. Most readers complain that they don't know what Ulysses means, that its unconventional style makes it hard to follow or understand. But this complaint has masked another, more serious problem that is almost never addressed. Most readers don't feel anything when they're reading, especially when they're in the first half of the book. The book is like meat without salt, to adapt the line about Cordelia's love for her father, Lear. That is why so many people give up. The ordinary, highly realistic presentation of everyday life, using the stream of consciousness technique, has failed to engage their emotions or spark their imagination in the way that fiction usually does through its careful plotting of complex problem followed by unexpected solution. So let me posit my first hypothetical claim. 
Although we all have feelings, even from an early age, those feelings are typically uncontrollable, at least from the, at the beginning. We learn as children to manage our thoughts and actions, regardless of our feelings. But the feelings themselves seem random, incoherent, and reactive. The only control most people exercise happens through denial. Here is how affect is described by Gregory J. Sideworth and Melissa Gregg in their introduction to the affect theory reader. It's a kind of bodily unconscious, a set of intensities triggered by encounters with other bodies um, or the world. Quote, affect is found in those intensities that pass body to body, human, non-human, part body, and otherwise. In those resonances that circulate about, between, and sometimes stick to bodies and worlds, and in the very passages or variations between these intensities and resonances themselves. Affect, at its most anthropomorphic, is the name we give to those forces, visceral forces beneath, alongside, or generally other than conscious knowing, vital forces insisting beyond emotion that can serve to drive us toward movement, thought, and extension. So, um, when theorists speak of affect, they're usually talking about something very broad, intensities, both bodily and emotional, that are not rational. So here's my question. Is it possible to feel for others without training? Do we need to learn to channel affect in order to be truly social animals? And what might that training consist of? How does it work? This is one place where Ulysses can help us think through this problem, because Stephen Dedalus, um, the, the anti-hero based on Joyce as a young man, is in the process of learning to feel for others. At the end of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, remember that's the prequel to Ulysses, Stephen's mother experiences him as heartless, although Stephen's perspective is somewhat different. He sees his heartlessness as a necessary armor that protects him from the squalor and dysfunction all around him. Specifically, what he's trying to preserve is what he calls the pride of his youth. The feelings he experiences deeply at the beginning of the fifth chapter are anger, loathing, and bitterness. He describes his heart as bitten by the voices he hears around him, and he comforts himself by summoning to his mind the words of writers, Gerhard Hauptmann, Cardinal Newman, Cavalcanti, Henrik Gibson, Aristotle, and Aquinas. When he hears a mad nun screeching Jesus from behind the wall of a madhouse, quote, he shook the sound out of his ears by an angry toss of his head and hurried on, stumbling through the moldering offal, his heart already bitten by an ache of loathing and bitterness. His father's whistle, his mother's mutterings, the screech of an unseen maniac were to him now so many voices offending and threatening to humble the pride of his youth. He drove their echoes even out of his heart with an execration. His soul was loosed of its miseries only when he replaces the voices in the world around him with the memories of what he calls the cloistral silver-veined prose of Newman or the dark humor of Guido Cavalcanti which displace his anger with a mood of quiet joy. He searches for the essence of beauty amid spectral words, and this allows him to pass on his way amid the squalor and noise and sloth of the city fearlessly and with a light heart. 
as he admits to himself when reciting verses to his friend Davin, the verses and cadences of others were the veils of his own longing and dejection. Stephen is also acutely aware of lovelessness in other people, of how it renders their service merely servile, mortifying their will and preventing their souls from expanding towards light and beauty. When he encounters the dean of studies building a fire, he reflects upon the irony of the fact that the man himself has no spark. His eyes are pale and loveless, and in them burned no spark of Ignatius's enthusiasm. It's helpful to remember that the name Ignatius literally means fiery. Even the legendary craft of the Jesuits had not fired his soul. Instead, he used the shifts and lore and cunning of the world without joy in their handling or hatred of that in them that was evil. Despite being a priest, the dean of, of studies is without affect. For all this silent service, it seemed he loved not at all the master and little, if at all, the ends he served. He has become a mere tool, like a staff in an old man's hand, to be left in a corner, to be leaned on in the road at nightfall or in stress of weather, to lie with a lady's nosegay on a garden seat, to be raised in menace. Stephen views the well-meaning old priest as sadly limited in soul, will, and body. His very soul had waxed old in that service without growing towards light and beauty or spreading abroad a sweet odor of her sanctity. A mortified will, no more responsive to the thrill of its obedience than was to the thrill of love or combat his aging body, spare and sinewy, grayed with a silver-pointed down. When the topic shifts from the useful art of lighting a fire to another object that gives light, a lamp, once again the priest's limitations become clear. He can think only of a real lamp, whereas Stephen is using the lamp as a metaphor for the writings of Aristotle and Aquinas, which is casting a light that allows him to work on a theory of aesthetics. Stephen feels his mind checked by the priest's face, which seemed like an unlit lamp. Once again, his lack of feeling or imagination means that he has no warmth or power to illuminate. Stephen wonders what lay behind or within that face, and he speculates that it is a dull torpor of the soul or the dullness of the thundercloud. Stephen goes through several stages of response to this man, a smart of dejection, a feeling of being disheartened by the priest's firm, dry tone, and finally, a desolating pity which began to fall like a dew upon his easily embittered heart for this faithful serving man of the knightly Loyola, for this half-brother of the clergy, more venal than they in speech, more steadfast of soul than they, one whom he could never call his ghostly father. We do not learn until Ulysses that the man that Stephen will ultimately recognize as his ghostly father is not a priest at all, but a Jew, Leopold Bloom. Stephen, then, is acutely aware of the importance of love, even when he was a student at university. He himself has passion, unlike the dean of studies, and he's also highly sensitive to his responses to others. He is even capable of pity, but others don't experience him as capable of caring for them. Stephen's friend McCann calls him an antisocial being, wrapped up in himself. Later, he tells him 
Daedalus, I believe you're a good fellow, but you have yet to learn the dignity of altruism and the responsibility of the human individual. Davin calls him a terrible man who is always alone. Most tellingly, when, he tells his, when Stephen tells his closest friend, Cranley, that he had an unpleasant argument with his mother about religion, he refused to make his Easter duty. Um, Cranley asks him if he loves his mother. And Stephen replies, I don't know what your words mean. Cranley then asks if Stephen has ever felt love towards anyone or anything. Stephen starts to reply that he tried to love God once, but Cranley interrupts. Has your mother had a happy life? Cranley is trying to reposition Stephen imaginatively to make him see his family life through her eyes, colored by her suffering, to which Stephen is contributing. But Stephen's need to escape, an escapism he confuses with freedom, is greater than his compassion. Finally, in Stephen's diary entry for April 26th, on the last page of the novel, he records his mother's wish for him on the verge of his departure to Paris. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Stephen has been unable to feel for or with others, and the reason he uses to defend his obduracy is his need to preserve his pride and his freedom. Between the end of Portrait and the beginning of Ulysses, there's a gap of over a year. And we learn from Stephen's memories in Ulysses what happened during that time. He received a telegram in Paris telling him to come home, that his mother was dying. The telegram actually contained an ironic typo. It said, another dying, come home, father. He did, and once again, he refused his mother's request, this time made from her deathbed. He would not kneel and pray for her. He has been wearing mourning since she died, and he's haunted by nightmares of her corpse threatening him with the inevitability of his own death. He fights her message, no, mother, let me be and let me live. Three pages into the novel, we see Stephen on the top of the tower, remembering his dream of his dead mother coming to him, reproachful in her grave clothes. And then the narrator tells us, pain that was not yet the pain of love, fretted his heart. Ultimately, what I hope to demonstrate is that it is awareness of the reality of death, of the shortness of human life, that helps Joyce's characters learn to care for others. Even if they had loved in the past, um, characters sometimes forget the discipline involved and need a reminder, and that's what happens to Leopold Bloom, the man who serves as a model father for Stephen although Stephen never realizes that in the book itself, although the fact that the book is written in the way that it is by an older version of Stephen implies that he realized it later. On June 16, 1904, it becomes clear that Bloom has at some point forgotten how to feel for his wife, Molly. We can see this in part through the Homeric parallels to the very first episodes in which the two appear. In the Calypso episode, the Homeric parallel suggests that Bloom um, is Odysseus when he is held captive by the goddess Calypso, and that like Odysseus, Bloom is overcome by longing for home and for his wife, Penelope. In Ulysses, however, we learn from Joyce's schema that the role of Calypso is being played by a picture over the Bloom's bed, the picture of a naked Greek goddess who looks like a slimmer version of Molly. In other words, the person keeping Bloom, Bloom captive is an idealized version of his wife, or to put it another way, 
it is an impression of Molly as immortal. If he views her unconsciously as a goddess, he is seeing her not only as more powerful than any mere human can be, but he is forgetting the fact that she too is aging and subject to the limitations of mortality. Um, and uh, I, I hope it's possible, given what you know of the Odyssey, to, to see the poignancy of what I think Joyce is doing in Calypso, that um, a person that is in love with an ide idealized image can't um, care for the actual, real, changing person um, that he's living with. The next episode clarifies this problem. It's based on the Lotus Eaters episode. You may remember that Odysseus recounts coming to the land of the Lotus Eater, sorry, coming to the land of the Lotus Eaters on the tenth day after he sailed from Troy. He says that the Lotus Eaters meant no harm, but gave his men some lotus to eat. Whoever ate that sweet fruit lost the will to report back, preferring instead to stay there munching lotus, oblivious of home. In the Lotus Eaters episode of Ulysses, Bloom observes the lotus in lots of different forms, cigarettes, communion wafers, alcohol, candy, and many other potentially addictive substances. But Bloom too has a lotus that helps him forget the, th the thought of home, as we discover when we learn that he has a secret erotic correspondence with a woman he's never met. We discover it's functioning as a lotus when we note that her letter to him contains a dried flower and we can conclude that just as a fantasy was keeping him captive in Calypso, another fantasy is helping him forget his home, the fantasy of having an emotional, erotic, and literary connection with another woman that never has to bear the stress of daily life. The lotus distracts its eaters from the thought of home by taking away their ability to feel, and especially to feel pain. It makes the eater feel immortal. I can best explain why it's problematic to feel immortal and to channel all one's desires towards an unattainable fantasy by directing you to a recent best-selling book by a doctor, Atul Gawande, called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. I don't know if anyone here has read it. Um, Gawande's main focus is on aging and death. He argues that prolonged medical treatments at the end of life, especially for terminal patients, often compromise their quality of life and demand that they sacrifice what is most important to them, everyday pleasures and the people who are closest to them. I'm particularly interested in his account of research done by Laura Karstensen. Karstensen began by looking at people who are young and healthy, who think they will live forever, noting how that view of the self as immortal allows people to, de to delay gratification by building a future that involves risk-taking. She contrasted that expansive attitude of what I'll call the immortal self with what happens when the future appears as finite and uncertain. And she found that, quote, the focus shifts to the here and now, to everyday pleasures and the people closest to you. At first, these different priorities seemed closely correlated with youth versus age, the younger the subjects were, the less they valued time with people who um, were, they were emotionally close to, and the more they valued time with people um, who were potential sources of information or new friendship. The fact that you came to this lecture, for example, you know, is part of this, this whole um, 
uh, set of attitudes, which is wonderful because it's how people get educated. It's how people build lives and careers. But then she discovered that um, this changed among subjects who were ill. The age differences disappeared. The preferences of a young person with AIDS were the same as those of an old person. Karstensen did more experiments, such as one that asked participants to imagine they're moving far away. And again, everyone's priorities shifted, regardless of age. The young cho chose as the old did. She asked them to imagine that a medical breakthrough had added 20 years to their lives, and the old chose as the young did. She repeated her studies in Hong Kong, both before and after the announcement that Hong Kong would be turned over to China, and the results changed depending on how anxious the participants were about the future, not about how old they were. Um, they did a similar study in the US after 9-11 with similar results. There is a chasm of perspective that divides those who have to contend with life's fragility and those who don't. When the certainties of life have been shaken, people need greater emotional connection to those closest to them. Specifically, what increases is the need for everyday comforts, for companionship, for help achieving one's modest aims. In short, feeling for others becomes more imperative when one faces the reality of one's limitations as a mortal human being. The categories that Karstensen has identified can be spun in several different ways. The, physically and the physical and intellectual daring attitude, the physically and intellectually <laughs> daring attitude of someone who feels immortal can be used not only to describe young people in contrast to the more relational and emotional values of older people, but it is also often applied to the difference between the sexes. Men are categorized as more daring and likely to take risks, whereas women are often considered more emotional and domestic. The main point I would like to use Karstensen's studies to make, however, is that these differences are not inherent. They are, instead, dependent upon one's situation and one's perspective. As Gawande's book amply shows, a dying woman can fight death like a wildcat and a young man can feel deeply and be sharply attuned to the here and now. These categories also help us define the differences between the Iliad and the Odyssey. One is about the importance of physical bravery and intellectual strategy. And while these attributes are important in the Odyssey as well, the Odyssey emphasizes Odysseus's presence of mind, his desire for home, and his metis, or cunning. You will probably remember that Metis was a titan goddess, Zeus's first wife, whom he turned into a fly and swallowed. Um, this anecdote shows that, at least in some areas of Greek myth, wisdom was um, implicitly an attribute of women. It's because of the diametrical differences between the Iliad and the Odyssey that Samuel Butler could argue so plausibly and archly in the 19th century that the Odyssey had to have been written by a woman. In Joyce's Ulysses, however, what makes the hero heroic is the capacity to encompass both extremes, to be adventurous and expansive and to have feeling, to be both male and female, to be both old and young. This helps explain why Bloom has the middle name of Paula. He is both Leopold and Paula. <laughs> why he can be described as the new womanly man. At the end of the Ithaca episode, he is represented as simultaneously older and younger the child-man weary, and the man-child in the womb. Also in Ithaca, 
we learn that Bloom is more disturbed by noise than by darkness because of the surety of the sense of touch in his firm, full, masculine, feminine, passive, active hand. This sentence is crucial because it demonstrates what Joyce elsewhere refers to humorously as Bloom's ambidexterity. He is both male and female, passive and active, but it also accents his capacity for feeling, that hand, um, surety of touch. Feeling here means touch, but it is the kind of touch we expect to encounter in the blind. It should be hardly surprising to learn then that both Bloom and Stephen are metaphorically associated with blind men, often referred to as dark men. Bloom is a dark horse in the human race, capable, like the horse throwaway in the book, of winning a race against long odds. And both he and Stephen are dressed in mourning. Most importantly, both are associated in the with a character in the book known only as the blind stripling. Bloom helps him across the street at the end of Lestragonians, gently taking what the narrator calls the limp, seeing hand to guide it forward. What I want to emphasize by stressing the links between Bloom, Stephen, and a blind man is the highly unusual depiction of heroism in terms of a disability that is also an exceptional talent. Here, a capacity for feeling. By the way, I went to the um, American Visionary Art Museum <laughs> today, and um, I was fascinated by how many of the works of art there are um, you know, produced by people who have had some catastrophe and become disabled. Anyway, it was just a, an interesting local aside. Um, but um, Bloom and Stephen are blind throughout most of the book, um, but they also have a facility for feeling their way forward. I mean, they're metaphorically blind, obviously. Instead of defining heroism as perfection, Joyce reconfigures it as a capacity and determination to compensate for inevitable flaws. The fact that Bloom and Stephen have been blind to the feelings of important women in their lives doesn't make them admirable or despicable. But their blindness has given them the opportunity to learn to see differently with enhanced feeling. So in Proteus, Stephen closes his eyes, commanding himself to shut your eyes and see. He then thinks of the ash plant hanging by his side and tells himself to tap with it. They do. Bloom thinks, look at all the things they can learn to do. Read with their fingers, tune pianos, or we are surprised they have any brains. Why we think a deformed person or a hunchback clever if he says something we might say. Of course, the other senses are more dark men, they call them. Sense of smell must be stronger, too. Smells on all sides, bunched together. Each street, different smell. Each person, too. Then the spring, the summer. Smells, tastes. They say you can't taste wines with your eyes shut or a cold in the head. Also, smoke in the dark, they say, get no pleasure. And with a woman, for instance, more shameless not seeing, must be strange not to see her, kind of a form in the mind's eye, the voice, temperatures. When he touches her with his fingers, must almost see the lines, the curves. His hands on her hair, for instance. Say it was black, for instance. Good, we call it black. Then passing over her white skin, different feel, perhaps, feeling of white. Bloom then tries to imagine seeing by touch, 
he slowly feels his hair above his ears, which he describes as fibers of fine straw. I just think this is hysterical. And the, the downy hair of his, white, of his right cheek, but decides his cheek isn't smooth enough. And he ducks into a less well-traveled street. Um, walking by Doran's public house, he slid his hand between his waistcoat and trousers, and pulling aside his shirt gently, felt a slack fold of his belly. But I know it's whitey yellow. I'm sorry, I know it's whitey yellow. Want to try in the dark to see. Bloom and Stephen are blind in one sense, to wife and mother respectively, but extraordinarily feeling in another. In a really literal way, each tries to feel what it is like to be blind. Bloom even wonders what the blind stripling's dreams are like if he has never been able to see. When they think of or encounter a limitation, here a bodily disability, they slow down and feel even ordinary things through their other senses. This is also what happens in Karstensen's studies when people become aware of the fragility or shortness of life. Their perceptions of everyday life become more acute and the emotional texture of their relationships is heightened through the use of imagination and identification. Bloom's description of what it's like to be blind is eerily similar to a description of what it's like to read a book. Although we aren't blind, we don't actually see what is happening. Instead, we create a form in the mind's eye and give it the appropriate colors and movements. But is this, in fact, how most adult readers proceed? Um, is most reading instead more rushed, driven by generic expectations and the desire to finish? Must readers, too, learn to read more feelingly? Let me stop for a moment and flesh out what I mean when I say the emotions we usually feel um, when we read might be programmed. I'll give two examples of how a writer might produce emotion through words. The first is T.S. Eliot's famous definition of what he calls an objective correlative. In his 19, 1919 essay on Hamlet, Eliot says that the only way of expressing emotion in the form of art is by finding an objective correlative. In other words, a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion. There's something almost scientific about Eliot's proposition. He says that subjective feeling has to be triggered by objective objects or actions. And then every time that situation is encountered, it will evoke the emotion particular to it, kind of like inside out. <laughs> um, let me give another example, though, that most people will be familiar with. Canned laughter added to the soundtrack of a sitcom. Scary music used to accompany a horror film. One could argue that here, audience emotions are quite literally programmed. I once heard a lecture by the composer Aaron Copeland when I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin. He was talking about the first time he composed music for a film. When they put his music together with the filmed images and played the result to a test audience, he was, he was astonished to discover that the audience laughed during a heart-wrenching scene. He then realized that the music he had paired with that scene was too fast and upbeat for the content. The audience's emotions were being produced by the music even more than by the story or the images, and so he had to rewrite the whole scene. I ask you to consider then whether a reader's emotional response to a fictional scene might be more predictable than most of us may realize. Furthermore, I ask you to imagine a book in which the author jerks the reader's chain, in a sense, by providing an emotional response that is, um, by provoking an emotional response that is inappropriate to the circumstances. 
if the circumstances were to be more slowly and feelingly explored. Finally, I challenge you to consider whether this might be the most important reason that readers claim that Ulysses is difficult to read or to keep reading. We expect to have our feelings played in the usual ways, but Ulysses may well be um, doing something a little different. Perhaps it is a re-education in feeling. If so, that might be a very important thing to undergo, but the process is a painstaking one that one must undertake in the dark, feeling blind. Let's look at the first episode, Telemachus, in which Stephen spars with his housemate and frenemy, Buck Mulligan. Joyce's friend, Budgeon, um, asserts that every reader of Ulysses is captivated from the start with the wit and high spirits of Buck Mulligan. Um, and this is actually true to my experience of watching people read the beginning of Ulysses. Most people really like Buck, and they don't care for Stephen. It's predictable, I mean, in other words, which, uh, and, and Joyce you know, is arguably complicit in that. He knew how people were going to respond. Buck is blasphemous, energetic, colorful, and funny, whereas Stephen is morose, weary, sensitive, and resentful. This initial, this initial emotional response in most readers makes it very difficult for um, those readers to see something else that Budget points out, that the real action of this episode takes place within the mind and conscience of Stephen. If readers don't like Stephen, and if Joyce has primed that dislike by managing his adjectives and adverbs with such care, why did he do that? What I'd like to propose is that all three of the main characters of Ulysses, Stephen, Bloom, and Molly, are people that in other novels we would know to dislike. Stephen is a drunken, louse-ridden intellectual with a formidable, off-putting vocabulary who is also in mourning for his dead mother. Bloom is a cuckold, and most of the people in Dublin dislike him for being Jewish. They attribute to him all the usual stereotypes. Molly is an adulterer, shockingly associated with the Virgin Mary. Our emotional reactions to these characters have been programmed, not only by other fiction we have read that define heroism very differently than the way Joyce defines it, but also by a racist, sexist, and largely anti-intellectual society. The most difficult and important challenge that Ulysses issues to its readers is whether they can get past those initial feelings to what might be called the more embodied, individual, empathetic form of engagement of the blind. Can we learn to revise those superficial and predictable first impressions? And if so, how? I've tried to suggest that in order to feel the original and radical narrative power of Ulysses, readers must read more haltingly, with greater humility and curiosity about otherness. In a sense, we can do that by recognizing that culture not only teaches us to read, but it also makes us blind. We can learn to hear a different soundtrack than the canned one that prompts automatic responses to superficial appearances and stereotyped roles. In short, we need to learn to read as Joyce describes Stephen doing in Portrait when he says that Stephen had been listening to the unspoken speech behind the words. We need to learn to look beyond the caricatures bequeathed to us by culture and try to imagine the emotional experiences of the characters as they might feel them, feeling the hair, <laughs> feeling the skin of the belly like a blind person. Um, this is what Stephen and Bloom both do with the state of blindness. Bloom even does it with a prostitute. Instead of looking at her with horror, contempt, or lust, 
He puts himself in her position, imagining how hard it must be to solicit and receive so many rejections until one gets hardened. So what does it mean to read feelingly? It means to read not only in an effort to abstract the meaning from the text, but also to read sensually and imaginatively with emotional responsiveness. Victor Hugo, Hugo once said, reason is intelligence taking exercise. Imagination is intelligence with an erection. There is, <laughs> there is both physical and emotional pleasure in reading. Um, not as we were trained to read, but as Ulysses asks us to do it. It is not only a use, it is not only an epic of the body, it is also an education in learning to feel for others. If the book seems hard to read, it might be an indication that we need more retraining. And I'm going to leave you with a, with a bit of propaganda. Which is a web, it's from a website, and it's an essay. And the embarrassing part is that it's an essay I wrote. So, but it's only, you know, a page long. And it's called Why Read Ulysses. So, thank you.